Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 114. The Return of Slipnose. The short reign of Leontius is noted for a huge load of not a lot. The man was a career soldier from Isauria. He was clearly a talented military man as he rose through the ranks quickly. Justinian II favoured him and appointed him to lead the army against the Arabs in Georgia and Armenia. He was ruthless and successful. He was also in charge, though, at the disastrous Battle of Sebastopolis, which incensed Justinian, who had the general imprisoned for two years. Thus, he had little to lose by rebelling. His revolt was successful, but his brief time as emperor was not. The only important thing that happened during his reign was not a positive one. Carthage was finally taken by the Muslims, and the Exarchate was lost to the empire forever. Leontius sent a huge fleet to retake the city, but the Battle of Carthage was lost, and so, therefore, was the city itself. The defeated army was too frightened to return to Constantinople and admit they had failed, so they proclaimed their leader emperor. Apsimar was of German descent, and had risen to the rank of Drungarius. This is like the rank of admiral today. An admiral is a general in charge of a navy rather than an army. Apsimmer quickly changed his name to the much more Roman-sounding Tiberius and sailed back to Constantinople. When he arrived, the Greens, who had never liked Leontius, supported him. Leontius was deposed, just like Justinian II had been. Leontius had his nose split, just like Justinian II had. And Leontius was exiled, just like Justinian II. He had reigned for a fairly miserable three years. Tiberius III, as he became, was a much better emperor than Leontius. He made the sensible decision to ignore Africa, where Carthage was now definitely lost. Instead, he appointed his brother Heraclius as monostrategos of the east. The land and sea defences of Anatolia were strengthened before Heraclius proceeded to attack the Arab Umayyad Caliphate under Abd al-Malik, winning minor victories while raiding into northern Syria in 700 and 701. He then successfully invaded Armenia. The emperor then turned his attention to the island of Cyprus, which had been underpopulated since the reign of Justinian II. He sent a delegate to the caliph at Damascus, asking for the return of many Cypriot prisoners who had been captured near the Propontis. The caliph agreed, and the people returned to their island home. Tiberius strengthened the defence of the island at the same time by increasing the garrison numbers with troops from the Taurus Mountains. He also repaired the sea walls of Constantinople. The empire became stronger under Tiberius, and he didn't have to deal with any serious rebellions. The only one known about never really got started, and just resulted in a man called Philippikos Bardanes being exiled to the island of Kefalonia. Remember his name, because we'll be meeting him again soon. Over in Curzon, Justinian was making a nuisance of himself. The deposed emperor had taken to wearing a false nose made of gold and gathering around him conspirators who plotted to overthrow Leontius. When Leontius was overthrown anyway, they were pleased, but the overthrower was not the overthrower they wanted. So they plotted to overthrow the overthrower and place their own overthrower on the throne. The authorities in Kherson had had enough of all this plotting, but they didn't have the authority to execute the great-great-grandson of Heraclius, so they decided to send him back to Constantinople and let the emperor decide what to do with him. Justinian found out about the plot and escaped from Curzon. He immediately went to the Kargan of a people called the Khazars, where he was welcomed and given the Kargan's sister as a wife. 
This poor girl must have wondered what she had done to deserve, being married off to a deranged lunatic with a gold nose, but married to him she was. He immediately had her renamed. And what name was she given? Well, who did this man want to be? Yep, he thought he was just like Justinian the Great, so of course he had his new wife called Theodora. Pretty soon, the authorities in Constantinople found out where Justinian was, and with a mixture of cash and threats, persuaded the Kagan to have him killed. The Kagan sent two men, called Papatsis and Balgats, in to kill the deposed emperor, but Justinian found out what was going on. When the assassins arrived, the man with no nose invited them into his house, where, with the strength of a madman, he strangled both of them with his bare hands. Now, there was clearly no time to lose. Justinian stole a fishing boat and sailed back to Kherson. There he picked up his supporters and headed for the lands held by the Bulgars. A terrible storm swelled around the ship as they crossed the Black Sea, and it seemed like they would sink. One of the crew said to Justinian that maybe God was warning him that he must be merciful and spare the lives of anyone who had helped overthrow him in the first place. Maybe if he made an oath that he would not execute anybody, then they would be saved. Justinian was not interested. I will not spare a single one of them, he said. If God has a problem with that, then let him drown me now. God didn't drown him, which was very bad news for an awful lot of people. The Bulgar king, Turval, was very happy to help, mainly because Justinian promised that he would make Turval Caesar when he regained his throne. In the spring of 705, with an army of 15,000 Bulgar and Slav horsemen, Justinian appeared before the walls of Constantinople. For three days he tried to convince the citizens of Constantinople to open the gates, but they refused. Justinian's men discovered an old water channel which ran under the city walls. Silently at night, he and a few of his supporters slipped into the channel and emerged in the city. There they took the guards by surprise and were soon in control. Tiberius fled to Bithynia. His quite successful seven-year reign was at an end. The people faced with a choice between surrender and a barbarian sack of the city, wisely chose to surrender. Justinian quickly had Tiberius captured and brought back to Constantinople. Leontius was dragged from the monastery where he was in exile and also brought back to the city. On the 15th of February 706, they were both paraded around the Hippodrome and pelted with rotten food and animal poo. When the parade was over, they were both flung at the feet of the emperor. Wearing his purple boots, he placed one foot on the neck of each of them and raised his arms into the air in triumph. The people cheered, although most of them were actually not very pleased he was back. Leontius and Tiberius III were both beheaded. Leontius was definitely over 50 years old, but we have no idea how old Tiberius was. The man with the golden nose was back in charge. The man with the golden nose was very cross about what had been done to him. The man with the golden nose was about to release a reign of terror on his empire which would match those of both Caracalla and Focus in killings and cruelty. Justinian II had returned to power in 705, having been deposed and exiled ten years before. Six years later he was deposed again, but he made the most of the six years in between. That is, he made the most of taking revenge on anyone who had opposed him and anyone else who upset him in any way. Before we get into the terrible six years of the second reign of Slitnose, though, we must introduce the one man who seemed to survive and prosper throughout. A Syrian shepherd called Conon had ridden out and met Justinian's forces on the way back to Constantinople. 
The story goes that he gave the Emperor 500 sheep to feed his army if the Emperor let him become a member of the Imperial Guard. Conon changed his name to the much more Roman-sounding Leo and began his career in the army. He was very successful and rose up through the ranks and was eventually sent by Justinian to the east on a diplomatic mission. The man who history has come to know as Leo the Isaurian, although he probably wasn't an Isaurian, was fluent in Greek and Arabic, so he could speak to the Arabs in their own language. His mission was very successful. Leo was clearly a rising star. But whose side is this Leo the Isaurian really on? He speaks Arabic and he seems to be able to get the Arabs to do what he wants. In the next chapter, we will find out. Meanwhile, the terror began. The best general in the empire happened to be the brother of Tiberius III, so he stood no chance. He was hung, along with his officers, along the land walls of the city. The patriarch who had crowned both Leontius and Tiberius was blinded and exiled to Rome. A big splurge of executions and torture followed. Many more army officers were executed, and Justinian found some new and nasty ways of killing his victims. Some were blinded viciously, so that they died. Some were simply beheaded, and some were tied up in sacks which were made heavy with weights and thrown into the sea so they sank and drowned. A churchman called Paul the Deacon wrote about what was going on and how many people the man with the golden nose was having executed. As often as he would have wiped his nose, he wrote, almost as often did he order someone who opposed him to be slain. It was clear to the people that their old, new emperor was even more of a madman than he had been the first time around. The enemies of the empire, eastern and western, noticed the emperor was killing off his best soldiers, and so both the Bulgars and the Arabs began to attack. By 709, the imperial army had been defeated by some Bulgar tribes in the west, and in the east had lost the city of Tyana in Cappadocia to the Arabs. Justinian patched up relations with the Bulgars by talking to his old mate Turval, but he had no answer to the Arabs. Ignoring the threat to his territory, Slitnose started on a campaign of revenge against various parts of his own empire. Nobody's quite sure what the emperor had against his subjects in the Exarchate of Ravenna, but he seemed to be looking for an excuse to punish them for something, and in 708 he found one. The Archbishop of Ravenna refused to sign the usual document swearing obedience to the Pope. The result of the furious argument that followed was the sending by Justinian of a fleet under a patrician called Theodore. When he arrived in the city, Theodore invited all of the local important people, who generally supported the Archbishop, whose name was Felix, to a banquet. As soon as the diners had turned up, they were seized, tied up and loaded onto a ship and carried off to Constantinople. When they arrived in the city, they were brought before the emperor, who was sitting in splendour on a gold throne encrusted with fine emeralds. He was wearing a diadem encrusted with pearls made for him by Theodora. Justinian decreed that Felix must be blinded and everybody else executed. Understandably, there was a lot of unrest in Ravenna after this act, but the Pope seemed quite pleased. This baffling state of affairs was explained when it became clear that Justinian and the Pope who was confusingly called Pope Constantine, had been writing to each other. Justinian was still determined to get this bunch of silly canons accepted by the Bishop of Rome, and finally this appeared to be within his grasp. In 710, the Pope was invited to Constantinople for discussions. Constantine arrived in Asia Minor in 711, and the two men met at Diocletian's old capital of Nicomedia. The Emperor and Pope greeted each other warmly. Justinian, 
dressed in his magnificent purple robes and all of his favourite jewels, bowed down low before the Pope and kissed his feet. He received forgiveness for his sins, which was pretty good, as by now he'd committed a very large number of them. The talks began, and it was agreed the Pope would accept about half the canons, and Justinian dropped the rest. This is an important event in Christian history. The churches of Rome and Constantinople were more friendly than they had been for many, many years, and never again would relations be so good. For all his faults, and as we have seen and will see, he had many, Justinian had achieved what no emperor before or after had managed. He had unified the Christian church. Only 15 years later, this unity would collapse and the split would never really heal. Pope Constantine visited Constantinople in 711. The next time a pope would set foot in the city would be 1,256 years later when Pope Paul VI visited Istanbul in 1967. So, Justinian II had been forgiven for his sins. This was handy, as he soon committed an awful lot more. While Justinian was agreeing things with the Pope, the armies of Islam finally reached Europe. Stopped by Constantine IV and Greek fire from taking Constantinople and reaching Europe that way, they had trekked through all of North Africa and crossed at the western edge of the Mediterranean. A one-eyed warrior named Tariq took his men over the narrow strait to the rock that still bears his name. It was called the Rock of Tariq, which in Arabic is Jabal al-Tariq. We call it Gibraltar. The next city in line for a bit of imperial revenge was Curzon. Justinian had not forgotten how the leaders of the city had tried to send him back to Constantinople when he was in exile. Justinian had forgotten, of course, that he had been causing a lot of trouble in the city and it was quite understandable that the people of Curzon had had enough of him. Details like this are not important to loonies like the emperor and he was determined the city would suffer. Again he needed an excuse and again he got one. The Kagan of the Khazars appointed a governor in the city called the Tudan. Now, Curzon was an imperial city, and so it wasn't right that the Khazars were appointing a governor. If Justinian had been sane, he would have attacked the Khazars, not the city itself. But Justinian clearly wasn't sane, and he wanted revenge on the whole city, and this was a chance to get it. The emperor sent a force of nearly 100,000 troops. They achieved their objective well. Seven of the most important people in Curzon were executed by being roasted alive. Most of the rest were drowned in weighted sacks, and about 30 were packed back off to Constantinople for the emperor to deal with later. The Tudan was imprisoned along with a few others, and most of the other Khazars were slaughtered. As the ship sailed back to the capital, disaster struck. A Black Sea storm, one of the worst ever encountered, blew up. The fleet was rocked by roaring winds and crazy swirling seas, Virtually the whole fleet and some 73,000 people were lost. Justinian, hearing the news, broke into mad laughter. Clearly, he was becoming more and more bonkers as the days went by. Soon, word reached the capital that the Khazars were marching back into Curzon to avenge the attack. Justinian realised he didn't have a chance and released the Tudan and sent his grand logothate with a letter of apology to the Kagan also asking for the imperial governor and an exiled general called Philippikos Bardanis to be returned to Constantinople. Now, saying sorry to the Kagan after massacring a huge number of his people really wasn't going to make the Khazar leader feel better. The Logothet was killed and all of the imperial soldiers and the whole city of Curzon declared that they no longer recognised Justinian as emperor and threw their weight behind Bardanis. 
he was proclaimed Basileus, and war was declared. Justinian II flew into a mad rage. The envoys that had brought him the information trembled in terror, expecting to be executed merely for giving the emperor the bad news. He sent a huge force with massive siege engines to Curzon, with orders to destroy the city completely and kill every single person who lived there. Nobody was to be left alive. The siege engines managed to knock down two of the towers in the city walls, and it looked like Curzon would fall. But a new Khazar army arrived, and the imperial troops knew they would be slaughtered if they fought. They agreed a peace. They knew, though, that they would be tortured, or drowned, or cooked, or beheaded, or hung up on a hook, or suffer something equally awful if they went back and told Justinian they had failed. So what did they do? How could they escape with their lives? How could they avoid the wrath of Slitnose? Well, they did the only thing they could. They changed sides and joined Bardanis. Justinian was putting down a rebellion in Armenia when Bardanis arrived in the capital, and he rushed back to confront the rebel. He never made it to the city. At the twelfth milestone, he was apprehended by troops loyal to the usurper. The commander was taking no chances this time. There was to be no exile for Justinian. This time, he was not going to get out alive. He was beheaded and his head sent back on a spike to the new emperor. The head and spike were then sent on to Ravenna and Rome so that everyone could be sure that mad crazy Slitnose was dead. His son was also killed, and the dynasty of Heraclius was at an end, 101 years after Heraclius had deposed Phocus. Justinian II was the cruelest and most bloodthirsty ruler of the empire since Caracalla. Unlike the reigns of Caracalla, Commodus, Phocus and the other horrible men who wore the purple, the two reigns of Justinian II were not a complete disaster, especially the first one. He had unified the church and made the lives of the common people a little better, None of this, though, is any excuse for the killing and torture which terrified the empire. He reigned for a total of 16 years, and was still only 42 years old when he died. The line of Heraclius had been extinguished once before. This time it was gone for good. Dangerous instability was inevitable. Next time, we'll hear about the man who restored order with strong leadership after the dangerous instability, and also about how he caused a schism in the church which has never been healed. Until then, have a great couple of weeks, and I'll speak to you next time.